This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is brought to you by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Judy Bloom's Tiger Eyes, starring Willa Holland, and Vehicle 19, starring Paul Walker, both premiere on demand on June 7th, the same day as their theatrical releases. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. We're also very pleased to have both Audible and Shutterstock.com on board as sponsors of the podcast this week. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. And with over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, Go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SVU6. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. On this episode of SVU, we've readied our chicken impressions, checked in on Bob Blah Blah's law blog, and paid a visit to the Method One Acting Clinic in preparation for our discussion of Netflix's new episodes of Arrested Development. But before that, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Arrested Development, we thought we'd focus on films with complicated chronology. But then Matt said we'd already done a podcast on that, and that it hadn't gone over well. And to get over it, I'd taken a forget-me-now and forgotten. Looking back into our archives, though, I realized we hadn't actually done such a podcast, and that Matt was the one who had taken the forget-me-now to wipe out the memory of a particularly hackneyed Sean Connery impression. He was upset about having committed to audio. I did? In fact, it was the lingering, vague sense of shame that remained after he'd taken the pill that led him to believe it was because of the podcast he assumed we'd done. Deeply confused, we both decided to stop taking roofies recreationally, and just in case we actually had done a complicated chronology podcast, after all, to do one on cult comedies instead. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. So Matt, what are our picks this week? Uh, did that all really happen? I don't remember. I'm a little fuzzy on it, but you uh, know. All right, I'll take your word just for it. Forge on ahead. All right, very well. <laughs> uh, our first VOD pick this week is something I'm really looking forward to seeing myself. Haven't gotten a chance to. I saw the first film in this series and, and enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to checking out the sequel. It is VHS2. It is available on VOD starting on June 6th. 
This is directed by Simon Barrett, Adam Wingard, Eduardo Sanchez, Greg Hale, Timo Tahanto, I think, maybe, Gareth Evans, and Jason Eisner. And this is the second of these VHS films, which are sort of found footage horror anthology films. It's a bunch of short films, all very loosely connected by some sort of framing story. And each film is from a different director, kind of working in a, in a different mode. The VHS thing is kind of played loosely. Uh, the first film, there was an episode, I think directed by uh, Joe Swanberg, actually, that was like a Skype video, right, which right. wouldn't make any sense how it would wind up on a VHS tape. The idea was that these guys were like kind of looting a house and they found all these weird VHS tapes and they played them one by one. Looking, They were looking for one in particular and they were watching these different tapes to find it, but they kept finding these other tapes which had these crazy videos on them. But they didn't really look like VHS per They're se. Lo-fi, lo-fi. They were more first-person stuff, really, than anything else. And I think that's the same case here. I don't necessarily think these are VHS, really, so much as they're found footagey. But I, I enjoyed the first movie. I thought most of the segments were pretty effective and scary and, and clever. And supposedly this new one has some really interesting ones. Gareth Evans is the guy who directed The Raid. Jason Eisner directed uh, Hobo with a Shotgun. Eduardo Sanchez and Greg Hale are one of the directors and one of the producers of The Blair Witch Project, who really created the found footage uh, genre or subgenre. So you've got quite a bit of talent here, quite a, uh, quite a few talented people all working on different segments. And for the most part, it's gotten good reviews. I've heard some really great things about it. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. That's VHS 2, and that's going to be available on VOD on June 6th. And two more quick recommendations for you this week. We've got We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, uh, which will be available on VOD starting on June 7th. It's the latest documentary from Alex Gibney. That's the latest this week. He has a lot of documentaries. Yeah, he's not slow with them. Within two or three weeks, he'll have another latest. But this is the current latest. It is the story of WikiLeaks, the controversial website, and its controversial founder, Julian Assange. Gibney, of course, is the guy who made Enron, the smartest guys in the room, and Client 9, the rise and fall of Elliot Spitzer, and Catching Hell, which was actually a really good documentary about Steve Bartman, the guy who tried to catch that, that foul ball at a, the famous Cubs game, which you know changed the course of that game. This film, the WikiLeaks film, premiered at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival. It's gotten very good reviews. It has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Another one, like VHS 2, I've heard lots of good things about. People have recommended it to me. Now, I still like Alex. I mean, he's, he's hit or miss. Some of his films are better than others. I've heard good things about this one. I'm definitely interested in the subject. So that's We Steal Secrets. It's available on June 7th. And finally, also available on VOD on June 7th, we mentioned it at the top of the show, the new Paul Walker vehicle... Ve- <laughs> <laughs> vehicle 19 you like how i did that, that allison nice. so Seamless good and smooth. i know this is why i'm the best in the business vehicle 19 it's a it's about a foreign traveler who picks up a rental car that will unwittingly tie him into a web of local police corruption and take him for the ride of his life i'm on board that's it paul walker some sort of car thriller that's all i need to know that's it i'm in Totally. Got, I mean, you got to, you got to have something to tide you over until Fast Seven. Exactly. Is he wearing a chambray shirt? Yes, he is. I'm in. You got my money.
It's Vehicle 19. It's available on June 7th. We're very pleased to have Audible back as a sponsor this week. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Matt, you have a pick this week. What's your recommendation? I was I was just kind of thinking what would be fun. And I, I for some reason, I was thinking, well, who's, who's an author I like? And I thought of a, a guy who writes... Really, my favorite crime novels, which is George Pelicanos. Have you ever read any of his books? I have. He's He's great. great. He's a great writer. He also wrote for The Wire, the TV show The Wire, which I loved. And a bunch of his books are available as audiobooks on Audible. And the one I'm going to recommend is entitled Hard Revolution, which is written by George Pelicanos. It's narrated, actually, get this, Allison, by Lance Reddick, Lieutenant Daniels from The Wire, who has such a great voice. And I actually would love to hear him. Uh, reading an audiobook. That sounds fantastic. This is a, actually, it's a prequel to uh, one of the sort of series of books that George Pelicanos has. He tends to write about, you know, like a lot of mystery writers, he tends to do series where he creates a character and then, you know, you follow the private eye or whatever. So he has this series about a pair of private eyes. Uh, and this book, Hard Revolution, is actually a prequel to some of the other books. It's about this guy, Derek Strange, who in most of the books is a private eye. This is set in the past, in the late 1960s, where he's a rookie cop, basically. And it's about him and his brother, Dennis. And the brother comes home from the service. I'm reading this description from uh, from uh, Audible, I believe. So he comes home from the service with a disability pension and zero prospects. He's a man with good intentions but bad habits. Derek has always looked out for Dennis, but no amount of brotherly love can save him from the dangerous world of Alvin Jones, local bottom feeder, hustler, and stone killer who draws him into his web of violence. So, you know, Pelicanos is like hard-boiled, gritty, you know, crime, but with like a great detail, attention to detail, attention to dialogue. He writes wonderful, gritty dialogue, great descriptions of places. Most of his books are set in Washington, D.C., So not Baltimore like The Wire, but close. You've got D.C. And just the descriptions of period D.C. are great. The dialogue is great. The characters are wonderful. I I really love all of his books that I've read, but this one is one of the better ones. It's called Hard Revolution, and it is available on Audible. For Hard Revolution or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. I just want to understand this, sir. Every time a rug is micturated upon in this fair city, I have to compensate the person? Come on, man. I'm not trying to scam anybody here. Uh, you know, I, I'm just... Uh... You're just looking for a handout like every other... Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? That was a clip, of course, from The Big Lebowski. Not a film we're going to talk about, uh, not one of our picks this time, but maybe, you know, a kind of almost definitive cult comedy. If you're going to talk about the idea of a cult comedy, it's one of those titles that comes up. Otherwise, I, I feel like the idea of a cult comedy or a cult film in general can be tricky to define. Yes. It's one of those, you look at it and you know it, but... It's like pornography. Like pornography, exactly. Yeah. But otherwise, it's hard to really come up with specific qualities 
that are true to all cult comedies. Well, that's what I've actually thought was really interesting because we just sort of picked this because, you know, we picked Arrested Development or you guys picked Arrested Development and we were like, well, what could be the theme? And we we had a few ideas. We actually researched one idea for like an hour. What was the idea? I don't even remember. It was was sequels or like that had come Right, like years things after. that have been like, yeah, like like uh, kind of cultish, but just things that sort of had a long break between versions or that were kept alive, like kind of cultish by really devoted fandoms. And we did a, we looked for what was available, and it just there just wasn't enough there to do a whole show around. But then we said, well, let's do cult comedies because you know Arrested Development to me is almost like the Big Lebowski of TV cult comedies. Absolutely, it's kind of the perfect example. You know, three seasons on television wildly loved by the people who watched it but really nobody watched it and it was very quickly canceled but the cult kept it alive and kept it alive years you know there i mean there are certain tv shows that have had that but i I feel like the idea of it happening to a half hour comedy is more rare right Mm -hmm. because it's easier to latch on to a drama that has this kind of larger scope right but no one no one could ever say arrested development was not ambitious right so we sort of just arrived at cult comedies and it's very easy to pick the movies because there's a lot of them that are available and and we've got some great picks but i was spending a lot of time thinking less about the specific movies thinking less about the specific movies and thinking more about what does make a cult comedy. And yeah, you you know it when you see it. But I was trying to think of some things that they might have in common. And maybe before we get to that, because I think we're going to do our picks fairly quickly on this episode. Netflix actually has a cult comedy subsection, Allison. Yes. You go to Netflix, you go to the cult movies section, then there's a subgenre of cult comedies. And you can browse their cult you can browse their cold comedies section. And I just picked a couple of these titles. I wanted – let's do it this way, Allison. Yes. No, neither one of us are going to recommend either of these, mm-hmm. but they're all available on Netflix. So if one of these strikes your fancy, you can go watch it right now on Netflix. But I want you to – I'm going to throw it out. You tell me. Is it a cult comedy? Okay, okay. According to Netflix, it is. Right. But is it according to us? All right, here we go. Uh, the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. No. That is listed as a cult comedy <laughs> on Netflix. Clue. Ooh. Based on the board game, of course, right. from the 80s. That's the- a tough one because it definitely has developed a following, but I wonder if it's partially because of just weird nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's an ish. That's an ish. Okay. Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. That- but it's successful, so it's also a mainstream comedy. Right, right. Yeah, I would say that's a mainstream comedy. That's yeah. not a cult comedy. Yeah. Okay, how about Raising Arizona? I would say that's also Too mainstream? a mainstream. I mean,. To me, it's I mean, quirky. If the, if the Big Lebowski is, though, to me, like, that's the first one that I've right. read so far that okay. I'm like, yes, that is a cult comedy. I'm still kind of ish on it, but I can understand it, yeah. I would say that one definitely okay. is. Clueless? No. Clueless is not. Too mainstream? Yeah, I mean, that was a it was a successful and, like, much quoted and, uh, I don't know, just popular film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Clerks? I guess yes. Yeah. I think that's a definite yeah. yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Heathers? Yes. Okay, I agree. And let's go Beavis and Butthead do America. Yes. Yes, okay. Not t- not mainstream? I don't know. I feel like that comedy is so odd. That's allowed. Yeah. Okay, Jackass. All the Jackasses are on. Jackass 1, 2, and 3 are all on Netflix, all in the cult comedy section. I want to say no. Like, my first impulse is to say no, but then I'm not really sure if that's fair. Okay. What do you think? I don't know either. I would pr- say yes, I think. Okay. 
but it's kind of it's kind of just like it's sort of a mainstream one too though but it's also just kind of bro comedy right like i don't know that cult Uh, comedy for me has to include like be esoteric no i don't even know if that has to be that because certainly some of my picks are not intellectual like i think my first pick will not be intellect but i i think that I don't know. It just seems like it has like very straightforward ambitions in right. terms of its comedy. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess I would agree with that. Well, here you see, I think, a very interesting thing, though, which is that it is kind of hard to decide what makes a cult comedy. But I do think we found a few things just going through those movies. One, to me, and I agree with you, if something is a mainstream success, it can't be a cult comedy. Like Ghostbusters, right. to me. I feel like some people might say – I was kind of – I mean, I don't think it's available on Netflix right now, but I almost feel like if it was – they would throw it in there like a clueless or clues like movies that our people are nostalgic for that they quote that's not a cult comedy right too popular too successful if it's a mainstream hit it can't be a cult hit right right if arrested development had run for 10 seasons it would not be a seinfeld is not a cult comedy right right however the i think the quoting thing definitely does help make a cult movie agreed so but it's a it's almost like a secret language. It's not a quote thing where everyone knows it. Like Seinfeld, a good example. Like everyone knows master of his domain or yada, 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 yada. yada. Exactly. These are quotes that became like language that anyone would know. But then you go to a cult comedy. Like I'm trying to think of like clerks, you know, like, like 37 or, you know, there's, there's a few examples like the star Wars conversation about the death star. Right. Like these are things that only people who would know the film and are in that little cult, would be able to do it. It's like a secret language. It's like a pa- it's like a handshake, a yes. secret handshake. I agreed, agreed, yes. So I think that's another uh, general thing. Any other things that you can glean from that group that we got through there? I think sometimes that if it has if if a, a film has a particularly not like challenging type of comedy, not necessarily that it's smart, but that it's unusual, that it's weird, weird. right? Weird. That it's kind of niche comedy. Yes. I feel like that at least in this subgenre of cult movies is important yes. that it's not it's not aiming at a kind of like broad laugh it's got mm-hmm. a really strange sense of humor yeah. i think that helps a lot i would agree i think the one other thing i would mention uh and it's definitely true of my picks too it's like a lot of times i feel like cult comedies are often the early works of people who become like the mainstream comedians like the ones that are not quite fully formed they're not as good as their later works but the germ of their genius is kind of in there like clerks is a pretty good example not that i would say kevin smith is a genius but you know it's rough around the edges it's visually not very appealing but you could see this sort of like very intense smart perspective that's there even in this first movie that he made yes i agree one that i wanted to talk about but wasn't available is shakes the clown Ah. which i feel like is brought up a lot when i've talked about cult comedies to people and uh, yeah it's another one where you're like it's it's an early work but it's found this following right okay so uh, all right i think we've we've at least we've found some qualities that they share if not a definition so let's get to our picks, Allison. What's your first pick? My first pick, I wanted to pick a stoner comedy because I feel like that is almost – it's like a stoner comedy almost has to be a cult comedy because mm. it's aiming at a particular lifestyle and it's a particular type of laugh that not everyone can necessarily relate to, right? That's the very idea of a stoner comedy. Mm-hmm. And so I picked Half-Baked, which I hadn't seen for a long time. This is uh, you know, the 1998 film. It's streaming on Netflix, directed by Tamara Davis, written by Dave Chappelle and Neil Brennan, who would, Neil Brennan would go on to write with Dave Chappelle, The Chappelle Show. Um, and I would say Half-Baked is maybe half a good movie. It's 
this seems like a weird complaint to to say about a stoner comedy, but it's not very smart <laughs> in that I don't think it deals with its characters being potheads in a very like it deals with them in a very cartoonish way, which is, you know, I was reading about apparently Chappelle said on Inside the Actor's Studio that his his script kind of was dumbed down to something he called a weed movie for kids. Mm-hmm. I think you can kind of see that, but there's also like this really, there's a structure of a kind of, of more, more interesting film there in that it's about a group of guys who are essentially smoking their lives away. You know, like they, he's a quote unquote master of the, like a uh, master of the custodial arts is mm-hmm. what he calls himself. He's a janitor, mm-hmm. like, and all of his friends, all they do is just kind of numb themselves out. Uh, smoking pot and you know throughout the film which is about how they try and raise money to get one of their friends out of jail after he accidentally kills a police horse um (laughs) they uh you know that they're they're just like there's kind of continual they're just like idiots and or just like also partially just like they're either high all the time or suffer memory loss from being high all the time or in general kind of fuzzy on things and i think you know there's something there that's it's that's potentially interesting though i think in practice the the best parts of the movie are it's weird like kind of divert like when it gets diverted away from the original story and just has like the sequence in which the characters become pot dealers themselves to raise money and it just brings them into contact with different types of pot smokers is the best part of the film really like it because it also brings them in with cameos like snoop dogg as the guy who always like shows up right when just to smoke your weed and then leave john stewart in a wow, weird yes I it, like, he was in that in a cameo as a guy who um everything is better on weed janine garofalo <laughs> willie nelson who's actually has a wait, really wait, wait, hold on willie nelson it's smokes just, a, weed can you imagine right. There's a, it's actually a really kind of almost sweet scene it's him and dave chappelle and they don't really seem to be acting <laughs> he's just uh, <laughs> talking about like the old days of weed then there's a you should have been there smoker they love talking about the old days, back when weed was grass. Hell, back in the 60s, I was smoking shit on the street. Cops didn't say nothing. Hell, he's getting high, too. Everybody was good. Oh. It wasn't a thing to do because it was a thing to do, you know. It was a thing to do because it got you high. Can you dig it? I feel you. No, I, that's why I'm doing it. I feel it. Man, you cool as shit, mister. I hate to do it, but I got to charge you. That, that, that's 60 bucks. 60 bucks? Yeah. And I remember when a dime bag cost a dime. You know what I mean? You know how much condoms used to cost back in them days? How much? I don't know. I, we never used them. <laughs> Those parts are kind of the best where it's almost just like sketches, you know, it's riffing. Mm-hmm. And maybe, which makes sense that Chappelle and, and Brennan went on to create one of the great recent sketch comedy shows, you know, on television. But uh, it's still it's still a totally, you know, diverting way to spend, to lose an afternoon, basically, <laughs> watching Half-Baked. And there's just so many talented people in it. And of course, it does have the great moment of Scarface, played by Guillermo Diaz, um, quitting his job, which uh, if you search for Half-Baked, I think one of the first things that comes up is the clip on YouTube. And it is very good. Um, so that's Half-Baked. It is currently streaming on Netflix. All right. That's definitely... A, a no 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 brainer almost sounds like an insult in this case but i mean no brainer and seems like a an ideal choice of a cult comedy is half-baked cult? yes absolutely it wasn't a huge hit you know but almost instantly it became like a shorthand kind of a movie where almost every it's like a movie that didn't make any money but everyone has seen it maybe yeah. that's a good definition of a cult comedy that's as well a good point, yeah and I, that certainly applies to my first pick which 
along with The Big Lebowski, would certainly be one of the first two or three movies I would think of in terms of cult comedies. It's Wet Hot American Summer, directed by David Wayne from 2001. And again, a movie that made almost no money at the box office. But I think today, if you ask someone, or at least anyone with decent taste... (laughs) If have you seen Wet Hot American Summer? Yes, they have, and perhaps they've seen it several times or a hundred times. Of times. Which yes. is in my case, I mean, I must have seen this movie at least fifty times just in college because it came out when I was in college and just watched it over and over and over again. And maybe that's another uh, thing we could say about cult comedies is that they're not meant to be enjoyed just once. Or you can, but they they there's something about them that that ripens with each viewing where. You know, that language, that quotation aspect of it, it just every single time you see it, you you just learn more lines that you're just going to share with your friends and just repeat over and over again. And even though I haven't seen this movie in a few years, I, we could probably recreate some of the scenes from it right off the top of our head, like Chris Maloney and the can just having their conversations, the talking can, which probably we shouldn't repeat just because they're vulgar. Uh, and, so this is a family show, <laughs> but uh, the, the can talking about some of his sexual prowess, let's say. Right. I mean, unforgettable stuff. Or Paul Rudd, the scene where he's throwing a fit, Georgine Garofalo, where he refuses to clean up in the cafeteria. Or when they go into town. Or they go into personal town. personal favorite. I love that scene. Oh, yes. God, that is great, too. Is yeah. Too. yeah. yeah. It, it has an amazing cast. Like, uh, you know, just looking back at everyone who's in it. You guys... I'm really going to miss this place. Me too. Hey, let's all promise that in ten years from today, we'll meet again, and we'll see what kind of people we've blossomed into. Yeah! What time you want to meet? You mean ten years from now? Yeah. Let's meet in the morning so we can make a day of it. Okay, so what is it? Is it like 9 or 9.30? Well, let's say 9. That way we can be here by 9.30. Well, no, why don't we say 9.30 and then make it your beeswax to be here at 9.30? We're all going to be in our late 20s by then. I just don't see any reason why we can't be places on time. Okay, then. Settled. 9.30 it is. All agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. yeah. Great. Because I have something at 11. You just got like a trapper keeper full of appointments, right? No, I just have something at 11 that I can't change it because I already moved it twice. It really is an amazing cast. It's a great collection of people. And it's a great collection of jokes. I mean, there are so many great sequences. Uh... I could just sit here and just quote them, you know, like the sequences with McKinley and McKinley's uh, lover. Uh, That's a great, I don't want to spoil that, but that's an amazing series of scenes. You know, there's a lot of jokes that are kind of runners throughout the the, the movie. They start in the beginning and then they bring them back over and over again. And and it's just great. If you haven't seen it, you, you need to see it. It is a great cult comedy. It is Wet Hot American Summer. It is available on Netflix. All right. For my next pick, I wanted to pick a film that I thought had maybe the potential to be a cult comedy, though it, it also seems too small and to just kind of oh. had slipped by. This was something I thought about. I actually decided not to pick anything that didn't actually have a cult to it. Yeah. Because I could have picked some movies that I love that I think deserve cults, but I felt that was cheating. You decided that was okay. Well, I didn't... Because you're wrong. Right. This isn't even necessarily a film. I think it's like a... It's, it's a pretty solid film, but mm-hmm. it's not one that I would say I love. It just seemed to me that, like, maybe if it had come out, like... 10 years earlier except like that it would have like gotten a cult following but i think that like it's come out in a time where it's just too like the the field is too crowded huh. for people to find it which All is right. it's what is it visioneers which is this 2008 uh. indie film i think i mentioned it like as it was expiring on, off of netflix now it's on hulu uh directed by jared drake and written by brandon drake um it's it stars zach galifianakis and it 
happened to like, I think this was right around the time that The Hangover came out. So uh, it was when he was really just breaking big. But it's this lo-fi indie that's in the vein of Brazil. Would you call Brazil a cult comedy? Boy, that is a tough one. I kind of would. I think I, think I would. It, I think it qualifies. Yeah. I mean, it's funny enough. It's certainly right. more than just a comedy. Exactly. But I think it's funny enough. And it's, got an absurdist, it's got an yeah, absurdist it's, tone. It's satirical yeah. enough. Yeah, I would say yes. And so this is similar in that it's kind of a dystopic future comedy, but it's got a pretty bleak outlook. So Zach Galifianakis plays George Washington Winsterhammerman who is a level three employee of the Jeffers Corporation, which describes itself as the largest, friendliest, and most profitable business in the history of mankind. And their workplace involves like a a few desks sitting on this floor. And as each like minute ticks away, there are, in the company, like on the magic clock, that it, it'll tell you how much time is left until the weekend, how much time of productivity. And among the other kind of dystopic touches, uh, everyone is suffering from the, the mankind is suffering a rash of explosions where people just explode. It's like really, it, it's like due to stress or general like tamping down of emotion. So they have all these things to kind of help people out in case they're in danger of exploding, including one of George's coworkers who has been diagnosed to uh, take an unloaded gun and shoot himself in the head with it at least once an hour. So that's what he does at his desk. George Washington Winston Hammerman, level three visioneer. Hi, George. It's Charisma on level four. Hi. Hi. How was your weekend? Did you get a chance to relax? Yeah. George... Level 5 asked me to check and see how the new tent was doing. Um, well, we're just getting acquainted. George, Level 5 also asked me to call and see that everything went well with... with the doctor. Well, everything still works, I guess. <laughs> I just wanted to check. The Macput never lies, but sometimes it can be... It can be hard. Except in your place. Uh, I, I think in terms of like satires about consumerism, it's not necessarily that nuanced, but I think it has a whole very consistent worldview about, uh, you know, a corporation controlled future in which productivity to no particular end is, is, you know, encouraged for everyone. And I think that it manages something really interesting and like very darkly funny in that, that I think is pretty unusual for an indie uh, of that size. So I think it's one that's that's worth a look. And I'd be curious to see if other people think it was the kind of film that it's the kind of film that like has cult potential without ever kind of accruing a cult. So that is Visioneers. It is currently streaming on Hulu. All right. It certainly does sound like a cult right? film in the making. I mean, you're right. It came out in 2008, I think, and mm-hmm. The Hangover is 2009. Yes. You would think that that's, uh, that's prime real estate for some uh, Zach Galifianakis cult stuff, but I guess it hasn't really happened yet. But maybe people, maybe so many people will watch after hearing about it on this show. <laughs> That the cult will begin, and we can take full credit for it. That would be fun. Uh, my next pick, I would say this is probably, besides Arrested Development, this is also, like, sort of, to me, the definitive TV cult comedy, and that is Mystery Science Theater 3000. And I'm going to recommend, in this case, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, directed by Jim Mallon from 1996. And what's kind of amazing in this case is the movie version of the TV show is almost more cultish in a way 
than the TV show itself, which was like successful for a while and became a uh, a relatively famous thing, if not uh, popular, it certainly became known, and it, be, it really uh, was a very influential television show. The movie was like a flop somehow. Like somehow they they took this very popular or at least cultish thing, made a movie out of it that was very faithful to what the TV show was like, and barely released it. It didn't make any money. You know, it was kind of a disaster. It's kind of fascinating, but I guess that is just proves that it really was a cult comedy. It is basically, if you've ever seen the show, it's it's basically just an episode of the show on the big screen. And maybe that was the problem was that people were like, well, why am I paying to see the show that I can watch uh, at home on cable every single week? I guess that, that makes a bit of sense. And the other odd thing about the movie is it's actually shorter than a regular episode of the show. Like the show was a two hour show with commercials. So like 90 something minutes, probably. The movie is like 70-something minutes, so it's shorter than an episode of the show, and it's shorter, a lot shorter than the movie that they're, you know, riffing on. Like, it's an edited cut of the movie they're riffing on, which is the old science fiction film This Island Earth. But, you know, this is another one where I've seen this movie 3,000 times, perhaps. Maybe that's where the name of the uh, the Mystery Science Theater comes from. It's not the year 3,000, but the fact that I've watched some of these episodes and this movie in particular about 3,000 times. And it does have some of my favorite jokes and riffs and some very quotable stuff. This is probably the point in the podcast where I'm going to edit in just a couple of my favorite jokes right here. Take over. And don't screw it up, jerk. Now it's time for the Brack Show. Da 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 da. It's the Brack Show, starring me. I'm Brack. It's the Brack Show, and I've got lots of good guests. Da 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 da. Meanwhile, Ness and his men speed towards Capone's hideout. So, Professor, you made this entirely out of bamboo, huh? Haha! Eat my photon, small heads. Why are they all sitting in front? We're sitting ducks in this thing. If we're going to make the airport, we'll have to do it on foot. When I stop, we'll pile out and take cover fast. Sounds like a really crappy plan, but okay. I don't know that there's that much more that needs to be said about Mystery Science Theater. You know what it is. You've watched it. If you haven't seen the movie, the movie is very funny. It is it is a little shorter than your average episode. If you're looking for more episodes, they used to be on Netflix. Now there are a, quite a few episodes that are available on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch uh, – I looked before and it looked like at least a dozen or maybe 15 MSC3K episodes are now available for uh, instant streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you need more MSC3K, you can get it there. Uh, so this was Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, and it is available on Netflix. All right. My last pick is a film that I had not seen prior to uh, the lead up to this podcast. It's one from a very well-known director. So I was happy to get to kind of fill, to kind of see more of his work. It is The Fearless Vampire Killers, directed by Roman Polanski, known, you know, in most of the rest of the world as Dance of the Vampires. Uh, this is 1967 film streaming on Warner Archive, which is not something I think we've talked about before on the podcast. But you know, I wanted to point out it's uh, Warner Archive has an instant streaming site you can subscribe to it, like any like Netflix. They've got a very interesting selection of their films, which are otherwise often not available on DVD um, or only available via them printing a DVD for you. So uh, a lot of great films on there, especially if you feeling if you're feeling like 
maybe Netflix or Hulu are starting to not have the selection you want, you know, as everyone kind of aims, starts to aim in a particular direction, Warner Archive is definitely worth checking out. But so, Dance of the Vampires, retitled by MGM, who, in a really interesting way, they kind of wanted to portray it as a type of comedy it's not. It is not, like, Dracula dead and loving it. You know, it is not... Which is a shame, because that would be great. Right. It's not a farce, you know. It's not... Even though it, it has a, it has a kind of broad sense of humor, it is not that type of madcap uh, parody. So in a way, it seems like MGM is trying to position it as, I don't know, maybe more mainstream a comedy than it actually was at the time. Um, it's a weird film. It's not really one I, I, I knew how to process. I'm still kind of thinking it over because it's a horror film in that it, it's set in this very traditional kind of snowy European landscape. And uh, Roman Polanski is in it as Alfred, who is the assistant of Professor Abronsius, played by Jack McGowan, who looks like a cartoon character. He's kind of this great, he's got this great giant mustache and shock of white hair. And the two of them have gone off to find vampires and slay them. Um, the comedy is sometimes just slapstick, really. There's a lot of falling down. There's a lot of uh, kind of hijinks. At one point, someone gets bonked on the head with a sausage, I think, and knocked out. Um, the professor tends to f- kind of f- get frozen when they're riding in a sleigh and have to be kind of defrosted. So uh, it is a comedy, but it also has a, a kind of quieter tone so that despite kind of the slapstick slapstick moments. It also has a lot of time in between and a kind of beautiful setting. I think this was Polanski's first color film, but it's got this gorgeous backdrop and some of it was shot in the Alps and it, it, you know, looks really kind of stunning. So the combination of horror and comedy in this case, I think is not your traditional horror comedy combination that we associate now. It's something a little more relaxed in tone, uh, but it, it is definitely an interesting film. It's not one of my favorites from Polanski by any means. So it does have a, a very Polanski-esque ending. Who says vampires are no laughing matter? <laughs> they certainly are. Hmm. So that is The Fearless Vampire Killers, an interesting cult film. Uh, It is streaming on Warner Archive. All right. My last pick this week is a a, a sentimental choice of mine, and it certainly, I think, is a cult comedy. Uh, It it really epitomizes a lot of those values we were talking about. It's quotable. It's hummable, actually, if you've seen it. Uh, In fact, since I rewatched a little of it yesterday, I can't stop singing some of the, uh, the, the music. Uh, it came from some people who went on to become really some of the biggest uh, comedians on television, or at least comedy television makers, uh, back when they were you know not famous. And it was not a successful hit, but it now has a cult, and it's the movie Cannibal the Musical, uh, directed by Trey Parker from 1996. This is the first Trey Parker and Matt Stone thing that has become widely available. And it's a live-action movie. It is a musical. So it even has sort of like, you know, now they're known also for the Book of Mormon. So this is almost like the uh, 
the dry run for that in a way. Sort of a, a subject that would not necessarily, you would think, make a perfect musical or a traditional musical that is turned into a very sort of traditional kind of musical. And that, you know, that friction is part of the charm. And the movie is about, I guess, this real famous story from, uh, where is it, Utah? Which is where they're from, which is a, uh, about this guy, Alfred Packer. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's it's loosely based, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, loosely based on the true story of Alfred Packer and the sordid details of the trip from Utah to Colorado that left five of his fellow travelers dead and partially eaten. <laughs> so that's not a spoiler because the movie opens in sort of adorable fashion which a, with a very bloody sort of like horror movie moment where – Trey Parker as Alfred Packer is eating all the other people, you know, covered in blood and these really silly, gruesome uh, gore effects. And then we uh, transition into the trial of Alfred Packer, where he is sitting, <laughs> he is sitting at, at uh, you know, the defense table and he's like, but that's not how it happened. And then, they, then we have the opening and then the flashback to the actual story where there are songs, uh, many of which are sung by... Uh, <laughs> by Trey Parker. The sky is blue and all the leaves are green. The sun's as warm as a baked potato. I think I know precisely what I mean. When I say it's a spadoinkle day, as I ride with my girl, she's my best friend in the whole world. You belong, set our goals high. With eyes full of hope as we aim for the sky is blue and all the leaves are green. My heart's as full as a baked potato. I think I know precisely what I mean when I say it's a spectacular day. It is certainly not South Park. It is not the Book of Mormon. It is a first film. It is a first project. It is rough around the edges visually. And, you know, just from a production standpoint, it is it is clearly the work of, if not amateurs, but inexperienced filmmakers. But it has an undeniable charm. And there, that perspective, the Trey Parker, Matt Stone kind of angle on things is already present in this. You know, if you like their stuff now, it's worth going back and sort of watching this and seeing how it looked at the very beginning and recognizing the things that would develop throughout their work kind of bubbling here as they – as they as they began and and you can see even if even though it's rough you can see the talent you know it's on display right there it's i don't know if you would say i can see them becoming as big as they become i don't know if i would say oh these guys are going to win tonys and you know they're going to go on to do these things but you would go oh these guys are funny these guys are talented you know like it the comedy it like supersedes the rough production values you know right from the start which i think is another cult comedy thing so that is Cannibal the Musical, and it is available on Netflix. When I say it's a happy go moinkoli, lakish ka donkoli, day. 
This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you can find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, for an ad, for a multimedia presentation. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in high definition. And they source them from around the world and put them at your fingertips. And many of the contributors are professional filmmakers. Um, Shutterstock reviews each video individually and adds 10,000 video clips each week. So each time you visit, you can find something new. Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy with sophisticated tools that help you search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor, and more. As you find the assets you're looking for, you can save them to your clip box, and you can access your selections anytime and share them with other team members. Shutterstock is a complete offering with excellent customer service, and they have dedicated reps and 24-hour customer support throughout the week. And they have a huge image library of photos, vectors, icons, and infographic templates. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. You don't even need a credit card. You can just start the account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you like to your clip box. And once you decide to purchase, you can use the offer code SVU6. New accounts will receive 30% off any package. So that's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use offer code SVU6. We'd like to thank Shutterstock for their support of the podcast. Thank you, Kirk Cameron, for that incredibly bible introduction. Okay, so tie yourself to your chair, because this is going to be a rough ride. I'm leaving this dying business to join the software game. Double newsflash! I'm starting Fake Block with George Maharis. The world's first anti-social network. So you know what? You can take this opie and shove it up your ass, all right? Because I will f***ing punt the next guy who tells me I'm finished, you f***ing ass So you can all go f*** yourselves. What? Sure. Please welcome the talented voices of Phineas and Ferb. Go f*** yourself! Your listener's choice pick this episode was in a not-at-all-close race, Arrested Development. So uh, created by Mitchell Hurwitz, Arrested Development originally ran for three seasons on Fox from 2003 to 2006. It was a highly acclaimed but never very well rated series that was eventually canceled. But it has managed to maintain an avid fan base that holds out hope for a movie still. The series is about the Bluth family, a wealthy Orange County clan with a real estate business that turns out to be hopelessly irresponsible and corrupt. Um, Jason Bateman plays Michael Bluth, who is the only apparently responsible member of the family, though that's certainly up to some debate. Um, he tries to keep things together after patriarch George Bluth Sr., played by Jeffrey Tambor, is sent to jail by the SEC and later is possibly going to be charged with light treason. This is all in the original series. As opposed to, to medium or heavy treason, of course. <laughs> the cast includes Jessica Walter, Will Arnett, Portia de Rossi, uh, David Cross, Elias Shawkat, Michael Sarah and Tony Hale, and it goes to show how much fondness these actors have for the material that Netflix, in resurrecting the show for 15 new episodes, seven years after cancellation, was able to get them together, um, if not all necessarily at the same time, which is something we can talk about, <laughs> despite they're all being pretty much more in demand now um, than they were at the time. The new episodes, uh, 15 of them, as I mentioned, went live all at once on May 26th. 
and they tell the story of what each member of the Bluth Funke clan has been up to in the time since the show's been off the air. With the series taking a new approach, partially because it was difficult to get all of the actors together at once. So instead, they follow an individual character in each installment, with his or her story interlocking with the others in an incredibly complicated mosaic of intersecting storylines, recurring jokes, and overarching themes. Now, Matt, Arrested Development is famous for callbacks, jokes that were set up and played out over many episodes and even seasons, and a very consistent mythology. All things that are really even more the case in these new episodes. Now, when we talked about Primer, you mentioned how little you cared for science fiction of the type that demands being charted out and analyzed. So my question for you is, has Arrested Development in its new incarnation become the comedy version of that, putting complicated, clever structure over characterization and maybe even over humor? It might have. It might have. That's funny that you mentioned that comparison because actually – one of the jokes I made on Twitter, I think, after I had watched the first seven episodes or so, was that the new season of Arrested Development makes Primer look like the Oogie Loves. Like, it is unbelievably complicated. And I don't know that it is always to the show's benefit, frankly. I enjoyed the new episodes. I did not love them. I enjoyed reconnecting with these characters. I didn't necessarily love all of the episodes. Uh, or all of the characters this time around and the way they were used. I guess we should say, first of all, like, how we, you know, what our history is with the show. Like, were you, a, did you watch the show originally? Did you oh, come to it later? Yeah, I didn't. I watched it later. I came to it much later. I, I think when we were both working at IFC mm-hmm. and IFC ended up licensing the episodes to show them. Right. I had always heard about the show. I'd heard good things about it, but it wasn't until then that I actually sat down and watched it. Okay. And I did go back recently in the last month and rewatch the first three seasons okay. ahead of the Netflix premiere. Okay. How about you? Well, I was watching, I actually am proud. Proud to say that I was watching the show on TV. I don't know if I watched all of the first season. I think I came on board, you know, midway through the first season or so. But I absolutely watched the second and third seasons on TV. I can remember, you know, pre-DVR days, like having to make time to be home to make sure to watch, you know, Arrested Development. And I can remember, like, the the very last, I think the last four episodes or so. The last four episodes or so were shown as like a marathon. They just burned them off in one night, and I remember that night very vividly. So yeah, so I was on board with this one, with the cult from the beginning. So I was really excited to see this. I even, when you mentioned IFC, I actually did like a, a web show that we did at IFC where I had to host the show, and it was like a second screen kind of thing. You watch the show on IFC, and you could watch on your computer me talking about it, pointing out the jokes, describing all the references, you know, bringing the backstory, all that stuff. So I've seen all the episodes many times and i would say that i am about as close to a ideal viewer of this as is humanly possible and even i would have to say that this season is flawed at best that's what i thought anyway i think it has some wonderful highs and it has some surprisingly deep lows actually there were some times where at the end of this because i basically watched it in two chunks the first day it was out i watched about seven episodes and yesterday i watched the rest of them and To me, there's sort of a problem with the construction in this way. The show kind of has to be binge-watched to try to get all the references, to to get everything that's going on, to keep the chronology intact in your head as best you can. You have to watch them rapid fire, or you're never going to remember what's happening. At least I couldn't. On the other side, watching them binged together 
is incredibly exhausting. To keep all that in your head is so tiresome. By the end of each grouping of, of viewings that I did, I was like, I don't want to watch any more of this. I want to take a break. Like, it's, it was not pleasurable. Like, at a certain point, it was, I was chuckling, I was laughing, but I was like, oh, I need a break. Like, it was too much. Yeah. I don't think that binge watching serves kind of intense comedy that well. Yeah. I feel like maybe very, like, maybe sitcom y style comedy is a little easier to binge watch because it requires less attention, you know? So it kind of, it can be like wallpaper style watching. But I think with something like this that you have to also pay attention to, it does become a little difficult. Like, I I feel like it doesn't serve the humor very well to watch so much of it in a row. No. But But you need to to really follow. follow We were actually, we were talking about details of this before we started the podcast. Right. We didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know. (laughs) You asked me a question and I had no idea of the answer. And we were going back and forth well this happened oh no that that happened after oh that happened before oh did this person do this yes but that but that was before no that was after. <laughs> like we couldn't we honestly didn't know yeah and i think in some sense that might mean the show might be fun to rewatch. right now that you've seen everything once you can sort of pay less attention to the narrative like the plot and just sort of you can pay more attention to the architecture and how everything fits together, which right. I bet would be fun. Yeah. But it's also like, it's kind of, a, it, did, did you ever find it sort of exhausting to watch Oh, this? I did. And here's, the thing is, I think the structure is certainly challenging, though I think also, I really do credit the ambition of it. You Absolutely. Know? And the way Absolutely. it just has like this crazy structure, but also, you know, something that's deliberately been made for a on-demand, you know, an on-demand viewing experience, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. But what I thought was most exhausting about it, and it's something that I feel is also maybe very interesting about it in terms of revisiting the show and in terms of the show being put on a much more permissive platform and maybe also just being in an age where if Arrested Development was ahead of its time, Mm -hmm. now maybe it's very much of its time. Okay. But I I found the way that the character, it was like a much meaner show. It was just like a much, I thought, like a crueler show in terms of its portrayal of the Bluths. In season four, the characters got less like, even less likable? Even less likable. Because I always, you know, they were always kind of like lovably terrible people in the original run. And now I feel like they are getting close to just being terrible people. (laughs) And I think that in a way, I mean, some of that is because I feel like the new episodes make, uh, attempt and maybe can't can't help but make the, the show more relevant. You know, like... Iraq played a role in a, like a kind of vague role in right. in the first three seasons, yep. but this season they're the Blues are real estate people, and there's a housing crisis to deal with, right? Like the housing bubble. So there's that aspect, but they barely deal with that. Right. This is something I had in my notes. I couldn't believe how little the show about a real estate company. Right. was not about the real estate market collapse. Except that it was about like what, you know, kind of ruined the company, right? Yeah, but I mean that's such a small part of 15 episodes. But I think like it kind of informs like the idea that like it was it's like just a general irresponsible business, right? I think mm-hmm. informs a bit. And later characters buy a giant house that they can't right. afford. Yeah, and, I guess that's true. You know, I I feel like like there are a lot of aspects like me and you know what like since in this time we've had the housing bubble crisis the occupy movement all of these things like we're a lot less kind of and like the idea of like the irresponsible like ter- like terribly behaved amoral rich is maybe a lot less endearing it's than less it cute than it was a few yeah years ago. that's a, and that's i feel fair. like the show registers that and knows that yeah but I, I mean there's one part even with tobias who in some ways gets off like is like the least gets the least harsh impression you know like portrayal yeah there's that aspect where there's that moment where he's with 
uh, Debris, Debris, who is his a, new girlfriend, a, his new girlfriend played by Maria Bamford. Yeah, very funny role. Um, and she is about to prostitute herself. Yes, because they've been on the streets. Yes. in pursuit of their dream. And, I'm you know, with you. And he talks to her about how he turned down a job offer for like one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year because he's like, no, we have to stay true to our dream. And she's like. I was about to have sex with a guy for a hamburger and you turned out $120,000 a year. And it's funny, but it's also like a kind of, I feel like there's an edge to it that wasn't in the original series, which is just to be like, how like how dare you talk about following your dreams of acting in this perspective, you know? He does an e- maybe an even worse thing later where that character, I don't want to yeah. spoil it. But yeah, no, but it's like, true. That's like almost his, worse in than In his that. like kind of pursuit of his art, he yes. does terrible things. Horrible and, things. And almost every character does really like genuinely horrible things yes. in this, in a way that they didn't. I think, I mean, like they were never well behaved, but no. I think, and I think that you particularly see this in the case with Michael. My, uh, yeah, I would say know, that's true. He, who, he's, he's getting worse. He's getting really like a bad. And yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that it's when he was the kind of, I mean, what was always funny about him as a character is that he saw himself as the responsible right. adult, right. but he oftentimes did bad things as well yes. in in the name of being a good person, yes. right? Like but now it seems son. now it does seem like he's gone completely to the dark side. Essentially. Yeah, I yeah. would agree with I would agree with that. And I, I think it, it kind of it as as much as I kind of admire that na- the, the the kind of nastier edge that there is to right. this. It also makes it a much less like emotionally right. You know, well, I would engaging say, show. I would say that there's a sort of a fundamental imbalance there, and what you're talking about sort of gets right into what I wanted to talk about next, which is the structure in terms of the characters and the fact that because of the cast busy schedules, most episodes focus on one character in particular and their story, and each episode is a different character. And in the original series, you know, Michael was sort of the good guy at the center of all this chaos, and he was the guy trying to. As the, as the opening credit said, keep everyone together while they were all horrible people. And even though he wasn't a great guy, he was at least an okay guy, and there was sort of a balance there between him and his crazy He was relatives. aware of right and wrong. Right. Whether or not he followed it, he at least had some sort of morality in his, in his persona. And here, there are characters that are just so horrible— and they're unfiltered. You know, it's like that 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 sort of like dark edge has no uh, character around in many cases to balance it out. And so I thought that maybe that's sort of the, the thing you're identifying is the lack of a Michael or a Michael-esque character who can point – at least point out how dark they are. They have such, you know, blinders on. They don't see how horrible they are in many cases. Right. And, you know, one of the, the recurring image throughout – uh, all of these episodes is an ostrich, right? right with their head in the with sand. With their head in the sand, yeah. Right. So they're aware of it to a certain degree, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's... it's it uh, goes down any easier. Right. Yeah. Now, what, what did you think about the structure in terms of... I don't think it was entirely a choice. I think it was forced on them by the limitations of these people's schedules. But how did you feel about having a Michael episode and then a Tobias episode and then a, a Job episode and then a uh, maybe episode? I think that your point about the fact that all of these characters come across better when integrated is certainly a good one. And I yeah. think that you do uh, like some of like the George senior episodes, I think, and I know I'm not the only one saying this are some of the hardest ones to watch oh, yeah. because 
I mean, he's just not also a character that you want to spend half an hour at a time with. Right. And he was really the character who was the smallest part of the original series. He was always the guy in jail or, or hiding, hiding in the, in the attic, attic yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. That he was really, he would just pop in for one or two scenes each episode and he worked great that way. Right. He was also, it's funny that we've talked about how mean they've gotten. He's the only character who's going in the opposite direction, who's gotten a little bit nicer, right? Yes. So they've given him more screen time and made him less funny. Which is uh, problematic. Yeah, and I, I think that it does remind you that some of these characters, you like some of these characters better uh, than others, but also just that most of them are funnier taken in c- controlled Small doses. doses. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, like, I think maybe the Job episodes were my favorite, but even Job is not someone that you want to spend an hour with at a time, necessarily. Right. You know, as, as funny as Will Arnett is in that role. Yeah. All right, so what did you think of the fact that the. I mean, part of the reason this seems kind of emotionally distant is that there's no closure at the end. That the, the it very deliberately sets up for a movie, a movie but or another in season doing or, or another season or in doing that, but in doing that leaves a lot of storylines kind of hanging. Uh, well, it's funny you say that because you know the whole time I was watching this, I was feeling like you know it's overwhelming the the, the narrative while incredibly impressive that it all fits together. I I assume not that it fits together in my head, but in Mitch Hurwitz's head, it all fits together somehow. I'm sitting there going, "This is so impressive! This is incredible!" And as I'm watching it, I'm going, "Well, the last episode of this season is going to be amazing because all these plot threads are going to come together, and it's going to be mind blowing. It's going to build to a crescendo of insanity." That's what I assumed was going to happen. And that last episode, I thought, was an incredible letdown because it left so many things hanging, so many characters where we don't really even know what's going to happen to them next. And it does seem like – it doesn't even seem like a full season. It felt like I, – I actually – the last episode ended, and I went back to the episode list, and I looked at the episode list to make sure there wasn't another episode because I was kind of flabbergasted. Because to me, it's like if you're going to make this incredible – apparatus of plot and and intersection you, the, the only way that that works is if you pay it off perfectly at the end and i was sort of shocked to see that they didn't yeah it's actually it's kind of like the sopranos ending <laughs> yes <laughs> you right. reminded me of it frankly in a way it is I, it was like like a deliberately kind of like anticlimactic, it, it, anticlimactic. yeah yes and and dark in a weird way. Did you watch through the end credits of the last episode to the, see the little thing at the end? I didn't. Oh, well, there is a little there's bit. A little of, thing. There's a little thing at the end that yeah. one character in particular who you've sort of wondered what happened to this character does get a little button that, uh, that actually is less of a button than it does, again, set up either the plot of the movie or the plot of the next season, whatever it would be. But at least it provides a little bit, if not of closure, then of we didn't even really know what happened to this character. So at least... Uh, we found that out. I yeah. mean, I think we've we've covered most of the ground. We've talked a lot. I mean, we've got a lot to talk about. It's like seven and a half hours right. worth of content. But uh, I mean, I think the fact that the individual characters are the focus is hit or miss. Like, I actually loved the Tobias episodes. Loved the two Tobias episodes were my two favorites. I loved the Job episodes. Did not like the George Senior episodes. Did not like the Buster episode. You know, Buster, who I loved on the old episode yeah. one of my favorite characters on the show actually he's barely in any of the other episodes at all barely yeah in I, I mean I, I thought like it was interesting to watch as the show went on to be like oh clearly tony hale's been very busy with yes. that beep or something it became very <laughs> yeah. clear that he was the least available 
and they just basically created an episode for him that was almost self-contained. Yeah. Not only is he not in anyone else's, nobody else is in his episode except for Lucille, really. And I just thought his episode was completely forgettable and superfluous and not very funny and very disappointing. It did have it because I loved that character. On the uh, yeah, I love show. him too. Uh, it did have a nice Ender's Game uh, moment, which it, I appreciated. It did. And, and, the, and, and the sort of button on his missing hand, the way yes. the way that evolves is kind of amazing. Uh, yeah. But I thought underutilized. Yeah, agreed. There was a lot of uh, a lot of potential there. I mean, did you ever get the feeling when you were watching it that you were watching not really a season of television, but like a seven and a half hour movie? Uh huh. Yeah, I think that's actually if you looked at it as like one episode. You know, and then like right, it's kind of brilliant in that sense, right? The achievement of it, right? But it's not all that enjoyable to watch. Actual viewing, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, and I, you know, there are certainly things that are. There are a few jokes that are like really great. There are some very very clever setups. I particularly liked who was responsible for the chaos at Cinco de Cuatro. Mm -hmm. I thought that was like very nicely done. Yes, Uh, you know, and I, I, I think that it's coherence of the universe in which it's set in is very continues to be incredibly impressive yes and the way that they weave back in so many references it is unbelievable how much of the old episodes characters references gene parmesan one of my favorite yes. like, random supporting characters pops up multiple times like you know carl weathers blah 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 you know barry peppercorn like they they managed to fit a lot of things and people in there in a way that certainly I mean, maybe it went, they went overboard at times with the fan service, but certainly if you've been waiting seven years for more Arrested Development, you got all you could handle. I, maybe what's interesting to me about many of the problems that we've talked about is that they are about the kind of permissiveness of the Netflix platform, huh. right? Yeah. That it's be, like you are allowed to go longer. You can take crazy formats based on VOD because it's not going to be rolled out week to week. You can make you know? really dark jokes. You can make really dark jokes. They, don't, they exactly. seemely do not care if we the characters are, are likable, likable or not. Yeah, exactly. And which so, is kind of awesome. Which is kind of awesome. But I think it's also what this show has proven is kind of the good and bad sides of that, which are that sometimes, you know, the old Orson want... Welles line about the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that there there are advantages to it, which the show definitely exploits, and there are disadvantages to it, which I think the show also kind of falls into. And I did think some of the episodes it depended on the episode. Sometimes the episodes were great, and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I could sit here and watch an hour long episode about Tobias or Job and Tony Wonder. I mean, that whole thing. Oh, was that was fantastic! Amazing, amazing. <laughs> but then again, there's you know, like then Maybe's episode is thirty eight minutes, and I'm just like enough already i yeah i'm ready to move on to the next character or or where is tobias where is where is job yeah i enjoyed it to a large extent and it was kind of amazing to see and certainly as an achievement in a lot of ways technically there it's very impressive but it's definitely not as good to me as the original show yeah and i, I would agree though i am certainly planning to go back and rewatch them so that is Arrested Development Season 4, and all four seasons of Arrested Development are currently streaming on Netflix. 
Well, that brings us to Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of different picks that are new to streaming. And since we can no longer give you a good rundown of things that are expiring, thanks to Netflix's taking that information off from their API, um, we have decided this time to go with two picks for each of us that have been recommended by our listeners. That's right. We ask for listeners to write in. It's a little last minute this time, but if we do this again, we can ask a little ahead of time. Uh, and then, of course, we have one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Yeah. So, Matt, you are up first. Yes. Are you ready? Yeah, well, let's – yeah. And, and again, uh, I think this is – at least to start, I think this is the, the best idea we have so far to sort of keep this segment going is to listen to recommendations. Yeah, what, are had... you, what are you watching? Just doesn't have to be a new title. It can be right. whatever you just watched that you really loved. Send it in. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. We've got four listener recommendations this time, and it would be cool to have a couple of – a listener recommendations on the show, I think. So, yeah, I think so, too. I think that's a good fit for... We haven't had a better idea than that yet, so that's what we're going to go with for now. So, yeah, send those in. And uh, I also have... Uh, we've got some Amazon picks in here. We're adding in Amazon. I've got an Amazon Prime account now, so... We're we're gonna a whole new universe yeah, is open to you. and that's streaming. So we've got so we're gonna we're gonna get some more of that in there as well, which is good. So anyway, yes, right. I am ready. So let's start off with three new films. All right. Speaking of Amazon Prime, my first uh, film is available on Amazon Prime, and to keep our cult comedy theme going just a little bit longer, how about 1992's beloved Saturday Night Live sketch to film adaptation of Wayne's World? Although maybe this is too mainstream to uh, be a cult film, but. You'll let it slide because we're we're doing our behind the eight ball here. Directed by Penelope Spiris and starring Mike Myers and Dana Carvey as everyone's favorite cable access hosts from Aurora, Illinois. I guess if the movie is not a cult film, it's about cult heroes in a, in a sense. We did a whole podcast about SNL movies uh, back on our old podcast, the IFC News podcast, and I think that was our number one pick, right? It had to be, right? Or Blues Brothers was number it one? was one. It was one of the two of them. They were one and two. How does Mag- uh, MacGruber fit in there now? I don't remember. Where did It's Pat fit in? That was last. That was definitely I think last. That was dead last. <laughs> MacGruber is pretty amazing, though. Oh no, it would go up there. But I mean, let's. It, it, the drop off is pretty steep. Yeah, those are the top three: <laughs> Blues Brothers, Wayne's World, and MacGruber. And then from there, it's a it's a free for all, quickly to the bottom. True story about Wayne's World. This is the only time in my life that I've ever fallen out of my seat laughing you know that expression falling out of your seat yes i actually fell out of my seat laughing so hard when i was what 10 years old 11 years old when it came out the scene if you remember with the product placement of course how could i forget made me laugh so hard i literally fell out of my seat when i was 11 years old so that's wayne's world and it is streaming now on amazon prime uh this next pick is available on itunes or you can stream it or download it at drafthousefilms.com uh, it's called A Band Called Death. And if you're a fan of Searching for Sugar Man, you might want to check this out. It's a very interesting documentary directed by Mark Cavino and Jeff Howlett. It's about a proto-punk band from the early 70s called Death, which was formed by a trio of brothers from Detroit. And I don't want to spoil the story of uh, sort of the journey of the band. But like Sugar Man, this is a documentary about this obscure footnote from pop music history that really becomes a very emotional story about family and about the love of music. It got a little dusty, not in the theater, but it got a little dusty in my in my house, in my bedroom as I was watching this movie, Allison. It got very dusty at one point, actually. <laughs> I really like this movie. It's a band called Death. You can get it on iTunes or on DrafthouseFilms.com. And last, I've got a movie on Hulu this week. From a band called Death to A Horrible Way to Die, which is now streaming on Hulu. It's the 2010 film, which was written by Simon Barrett and directed by Adam Wingard. They're the guys who made the upcoming home invasion thriller You're Next, which uh, is coming out later this summer and is really a good time. I'm sure we'll talk about it 
uh, again at some point. That's a great movie. This is a much darker and very bleak movie about an escaped uh, serial killer, basically, who's pay- played by A.J. Bowen, who gives a very good performance. And he's on the trail of this woman, played by Amy Simons, who we've mentioned a few times recently. She was in Upstream Color. She directed Sun Don't Shine. And the movie also stars Joe Swanberg, who I think we mentioned once already on this show. So it's the three of them. Uh, all three of them are in Your Next as well, now that I think about it. It's it's a much more downbeat film than Your Next. Supposedly, um, Barrett and Wingard, they were touring the festival circuit with this movie, and it was so depressing. And all the audiences, even though they were, it's a good movie, like people would walk out of it like they'd been put through the ringer. And they're like, let's make something fun. And that's how they made Your Next. So this is not a lighthearted movie, but it is effective nonetheless, and it's it's kind of scary. So that is... A Horrible Way to Die, and that is available on Hulu. Okay, two listener recommendations. Okay, first up, uh, this guy is, is a man after my own heart. It's James M., and he's recommending Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, available now on Netflix. He says, I've never seen a Universal Soldier film before. That is your loss, James. Uh, but it was, a, it was so silly at times, but damn, is the action amazing. It's probably the best action film I've seen since The Raid. I wouldn't... Uh, I, don't, I can't think of anything that would make me uh, disagree with James on that account. So that's Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, available on Netflix. And we have a recommendation from Alex V, who recommends Pi, Darren Aronofsky's 1998 debut feature, a black and white film, a fine film. I don't I remember the last time I saw Pi, but it is a good movie. And it is streaming on Netflix. And one from your queue. You gave me number 99, which is Rampart, directed by Oren Moverman and starring Woody Harrelson, the same team that made The Messenger in 2009, which is also streaming on Netflix. In Rampart, Harrelson plays a dirty Los Angeles cop, and the film was co-written by James Elroy, another one of my favorite crime novelists, along with George Pelicanos. So for me, that makes it a must-see. I don't know why I never saw this. I Somehow I missed it. I yeah. never caught up with it. So you know what I did? It's no longer number 99 on my queue, Allison. It's number one. So I'm going to watch this movie, so thank you for reminding me that I had never seen it. So that's Rampart, and it is streaming on Netflix. All right, Allison, are you ready? I am ready. All right, it's your turn. So let's start with three new releases. All right, my first pick probably probably could be considered a cult comedy as well, of sorts. It is American Movie. It is now streaming on Hulu, yeah, Christmas 1999 documentary, you. which is either it's either a cult movie, but it's certainly about cult heroes as Wayne's World. Right, um, right. Very good know. point. It is about the 1996 to 1997 making of Coven, which is an not indep- Coven, not Coven, Coven. Coven sounds like oven. It That's sounds right. terrible. <laughs> an independent horror film directed by filmmaker Mark Borchardt. Uh, it's an interesting film in that it is about like two characters who love and take this very seriously. The film itself is clearly turns out to be like a very unintentionally goofy thing, but uh, the process of making it is fascinating. But also, I, I have to say, like watching this film, as much as I think about this film a lot, it also makes me a little uncomfortable. I feel like there is just like the this edge of exploitation that it never really crosses, but is always there in terms of like the characters, uh, the characters' hopes and dreams, his alcoholism, uh, and a sense of like you're never really sure if sometimes you're laughing at them watching it as opposed to with them. Though, as much as though you know, there's a real sense of triumph when Coven is completed. I think actually Todd Salons has a really interesting kind of response to that in the second part of storytelling, uh, which actually even figure, fe- features, which actually even features one of the two filmmakers in it. So that is American movie. It is streaming on Hulu. 
Next up is a film I don't know that I would really recommend, but I have to say, reading about it again, I put it back on my, I put it on my queue, which is Daylight, uh, streaming on Netflix. This is not, yes, this is the 1996 Sylvester Stallone disaster film about a group of people who get trapped in the Holland Tunnel thanks to, uh, you know, just a once in a lifetime accident involving diamond thieves and illegal toxic waste coming together magically. In the I hate when that happens. Actually, maybe those people are going through the Holland Tunnel every day. It's not implausible. But uh, the reason I I put it back in my queue is I I think I saw this in the theater probably probably but did not you remember did? yes wow that that it features Viggo Mortensen in uh, in the role of famous mountain climber Roy Nord and the weirdness of that casting it made me curious enough makes to you... take a look at it it also features Claire Bloom as one of the elderly survivors who gets upset about a missing dog because of course it's not an action movie if you can't sentimentally rescue a dog while killing off most of the human cast. Right, right. Uh, and also features Scream scream Queen Danielle Harris as the teenage daughter. Nice. So just the, the, the fact that those people are in the cast makes me curious enough to revisit it and actually recognize them this time around. And directed by Rob Cohen, yes. the director of The Fast and the Furious. Exactly. Yeah. So there you go. Daylight. Must be a good movie then. <laughs> I, t- I don't know if either of us would actually say that. But Daylight, streaming did. on Netflix. And my last pick, also streaming on Netflix, is Imitation of Life. This is a 1959. <laughs> Just definitely almost as good as Daylight. Yeah, I know. This, this seamless transition here. Uh, this is a 1959 film directed by Douglas Sirk. Uh, released by Universal Pictures and starring Lana Turner as uh, as Laura Meredith, who's a Broadway actress uh, whose teenage daughter, played by Sandra Dee, uh, kind of clashes with her. It's about two sets of mothers and daughters. There's also Annie Johnson, played by Juanita Moore, who's the African-American woman who Laura kind of is both her friend but also is like her employee slash housekeeper slash nanny um and annie's daughter sarah jane played by susan Coner, who is of mixed race and who uh you know kind of leaves her life behind to pass for white and it's this really just opulent and wonderful melodrama um and it's probably you know the film of cirques that is most has most grown in stature. It was not at the time looked at as an important film, though these days it, I think, is undeniably considered that. But it it features um, some really interesting looks at both like race and class, uh, but also just of of this kind of idea, especially in the character of Annie, of like this character who is this martyr, who is this good person who just suffers and and ultimately, I think, you know, uh, has a, I don't want to say don't spoiler, spoil it, don't but like spoil has it. her finds a way to bring her daughter back to her in a really um, a very like uh, involving a sacrifice. Let's just say so. It's a great film, uh, and it's one that is kind of it's also really gorgeous. So if you haven't had a chance to see Imitation of Life yet, it's definitely worth a look, especially if you've seen Far from Heaven, which is a film that kind of you know plays off of it a lot. So that is Imitation of Life. It's on Netflix. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? All right. The first one is from Patrick F., who recommends... Mr. F. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Nicely done. Uh, He recommends Comedy Bang Bang. Uh, which is the IFC talk show parody hosted by Scott Ackerman and Reggie Watts. This is currently streaming on Netflix. He says that if you haven't watched it yet, you absolutely should. And now is a great time to catch up because the second season starts later this summer on IFC. 
Also streaming on Netflix is Mystery Men, which has been recommended by Philip L. Certainly would count as a cult comedy, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, this is he says, this 1999 film is an underrated classic, a spot-on spoof of superheroes made just before superhero movies became popular. And uh, it does have a great cast, including Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, Paul Rubens, uh, Jeffrey Rush, William H. Macy. Uh, and, you know, it's one that I have a sp- soft spot for as well, certainly. Um, so that's Mystery Man streaming on Netflix. Okay. And how about one random film from your queue? Uh, you give me number nine, which is Skins. This is the British television show, which uh, I've never seen. I've never seen the U.S. version either, but I kind of drew my attention to the British version. You know, MTV did it, an American remake, which everyone immediately scorned as not as good as this British version, which I put on my queue and then promptly left <laughs> for a long time. So, but it's uh, being, it's controversial in that it deals with a lot of uh, like kind of storylines for teens that you don't normally see in a show, including mental illness, uh, sexuality, substance abuse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I've heard good things about it. So that skins. It is on Netflix. All right, it's time to get to our next listener's choice options. This time when we were going through the potential options, we saw two titles that we were really interested in in doing, which were both war movies. So we decided, hey, let's make it three. So we found a third film that is an option. So we've got a war-themed listener's choice this time. And, And perhaps that will be the theme of the episode as well. So if you don't pick the title we want to talk about, we could just throw it into uh, cute shots or something like that. Our first option is available on Hulu Plus via the Criterion Collection. It's entitled The Steel Helmet from 1951, written and directed by Sam Fuller, and it's the first American movie about the Korean War. Here's the description from the Criterion Collection. The Steel Helmet marked Sam Fuller's official arrival as a mighty cinematic force. Despite its relatively low budget, this portrait of Korean War soldiers dealing with moral and racial identity crises remains one of the director's most gripping, realistic depictions of the blood and guts of war, as well as a reflection of Fuller's irreducible social conscience. So controversial were the film's comments on domestic and war crimes, American bigotry, the Japanese-American World War II internment camps, that Fuller became the target of an FBI investigation. And I'm a big Sam Fuller fan, and I've seen a lot of his movies, but I haven't seen The Steel Helmet, so I'd be very interested to see that one. Allison, have you ever seen it? I have not. All right, well, that would be a good option. That's option number one, The Steel Helmet on Hulu+. Plus. Allison, what's option number two? I think this would also be a good option. Yes. It is on Netflix, and it is Platoon, Oliver Stone's Academy Award-winning 1986 film based upon his experiences as a U.S. infantryman in Vietnam. He wrote it deliberately to counter the kind of braver vision of war of uh, John Wayne's The Green Berets. So this is not a positive, like, jolly depiction of war by any means. Um, Starring Charlie Sheen as Chris Taylor, also starring Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, you know, just like one of Stone's most acclaimed works, though also not, it is a very bleak depiction of, uh, of the war in Vietnam, not that many other depictions were light and fluffy, but that is streaming on Netflix. Okay, and option number three is... K-19, The Widowmaker, which is also streaming on Netflix from 2002, directed by Catherine Bigelow. It stars Harrison Ford, Liam Neeson, and Peter Sarsgaard, plus what I can only imagine are an incredible assortment of bad Russian accents. And the film, based on a true story, is about a disaster on a Russian nuclear submarine. This movie was a huge flop at the time. It cost a lot of money to make. It did not earn back its budget. 
and uh, kind of waylaid Bigelow's career for a while. She did not direct another movie until The Hurt Locker in 2008. And this is another case where it's a director I'm a fan of, and I haven't seen this movie. And I've actually heard from people who like, you know, who are real Bigelow fans who say, actually, K-19 The Widowmaker is a pretty good movie. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, so this would be a good one to check out as well. So that's option number three, K-19 The Widowmaker, and it is streaming on Netflix. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 10th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account. That's uh, at filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will go up around Tuesday, June 18th. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the war movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. And remember, we want to hear those streaming suggestions. We're going to keep using those on Behind the 8-Ball. So send them in, whatever you've been watching on. On Netflix and Hulu and Mubi and Fandor and Amazon Prime and anywhere else, whatever you've been watching, send it to us, SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And for Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>